Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Haley Beth Gershengorn, MD, who is lead author on an article published in the November Critical Care Medicine entitled, Understanding Changes in Established Practice, Pulmonary Artery Catheter Use in Critically Ill Patients. Dr. Gershengorn is an intensivist and pulmonary physician at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York. She is also assistant professor of pulmonary medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine of Yeshiva University. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Gershengorn. Thank you, Dr. Weinstein, for asking me to. My pleasure. I, I in, really enjoyed reading your uh, manuscript regarding uh, pulmonary artery catheter use uh, and certainly have seen um, certainly seen the de- decline uh, personally in our ICU. I remember being a resident and fellow, and it seemed like every single patient had a pulmonary artery catheter, and now it seems very, very unusual, even though I am a surgeon and uh, one of the practice in a surgical intensive care unit, as we'll discuss, I'm sure, is related to your paper. Absolutely. I felt it was uh, absolutely necessary to ask you, out of curiosity, when the last time you placed a pulmonary artery catheter or used one in the patient care? It's an interesting question. That's part of what made me interested in this topic. Um, mm-hmm. I am more junior, certainly, and I will say that probably in total, I have placed five of them um, as a fellow or a practicing intensivist. Um, that's in my six-plus years. Uh, yeah. So well over a year since I last did it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, sometimes we have this type of discussion in RICU, and there's, uh, especially among some of the more senior staff who, who really still seem to at times want a pulmonary artery catheter, um, are concerned that uh, we don't have people that know how to use them anymore because we don't use them. Right. Uh, so, it's, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting topic. No, and it's certainly a, a production on the rare occasions that we have done it to get the more senior nursing staff who's more familiar with them from time to time, right. and then the more senior physician staff as well to remember to hook them up correctly. Yeah. Interesting. So so uh, can you tell us a little bit more about looking at this in, in, in practice and uh, how you decided to go about um, the design of this trial? One, one of my more general interests is on sort of the variation in critical care delivery and practice, and so... Um, it's been this project is one of many for me um, where my main interest is why we do things differently in different places um, and is there explanation for this and uh, both myself and Dr. Wunsch, my uh, co-author I think felt that this was a really unique um, opportunity to look at the placement of what we sort of see as maybe a, a diminishing use of a device in the sense that we kind of had longitudinal data after it was more widely believed to be less useful. Um, And so we really felt that looking at sort of why people keep doing this versus looking at who might give it up um, would give us an interesting window into how we practice as critical care providers across multiple units, but then also how we stop doing things and why. Um, And so that's sort of how we got interested in it. I think the way we designed the study really was um, to try to look for a data set that would give us sort of two things most notably. The first is a good time frame. Um, So we were able to get for this project uh, data from 2001 to 2008, which is sort of on the the beginning part of that is on the point at which a lot of the more recent studies are coming out, sort of looking at whether or not 
uh, these catheters were useful in this population, and then also beyond that. And then secondly, having a data set that would really give us um, some insight into practice specifically in the intensive care unit. And so looking at what intensive care providers were doing, knowing that the catheter, for instance, was placed by them in the intensive care unit rather than folks, for instance, in the population I'm guessing you're familiar with coming out of the operating room potentially with the catheters already in place. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you were able to make that distinction with the impact uh, database because when I, when I first started reading, I'm thinking, oh, of course, surgical SUs have more because the anesthesiologists like to put them in. <laughs> and, and I certainly, my, my colleague is an anesthesiologist. I am not. And I, I sort of was very clear that I, I was not trying to make a comment at all on what was appropriate practice in an OR because I'm, I'm not the right person to do that. Um, and that clearly is a different setting in which, you know, the data is quite different, so... Can you um, maybe just for the audience um, just briefly elaborate a little bit on the impact database and, and what that represented? Um, absolutely. That would be great. Yeah. No, absolutely. So it was a, a database initiated and conceived upon by the Society for Care Medicine, but ultimately taken over by Cerner Corporation. Um, it was an operation, I think they collected information on patients up and through parts of 2009, but 2008 was the last complete year. And it was a data set of uh, ICUs in multiple hospitals around the country um, who opted to participate. They paid to participate. And for them, they received a lot of sort of benchmarking and feedback data. From the perspective of a researcher trying to look at data like this, it really created a repository of uh, patient-level data in multiple ICUs around the country. And, and I think it's not a perfect representation of the national sample of ICUs, but it's a fairly decent sample or representation of ICUs across the country, across multiple specialties, different types of hospitals, community-based, government-based, academic institutions. Um, that really kind of give us a sample of what's out there in the in the country across the time that they looked. And and some I guess some fairly specific unit um, level and patient level data. Absolutely, Absolutely. which was so, the benefit for your um, study. Absolutely. So lots of uh, clinical administrative type data, um, but also clinical information about uh, the patients. Uh, who they are, what kind of illnesses they come in with, how they present and how they're treated in the intensive care unit. And then, as you mentioned, a lot of information um, on the hospitals and the intensive care units themselves, so the staffing available, uh, the bed numbers, the uh, setup within the hospital, for instance, other units, other available wards, uh, things like this. So really detailed information about these patients while they're in the intensive care unit and within what environment. And... Um I think you talked about this a little bit in the article. I just wanted to explore it a little bit more. Uh, in that database, there's no real way to understand um, why um, PA catheters were used in individual patients or in units or, or exactly how they were used or types of um, uh, trends in, in data related to the, the numbers that the, the PA catheter was generating. No, absolutely. And so that, that is clearly one of the, the drawbacks trying to look at this question with this type of data, and it was certainly a question that a lot of the reviewers had as well. Because it's a retrospective database that wasn't specifically collected for pulmonary artery catheters, while it gives us a lot of information about the clinical setting of the patient, um, there's not specific information about why things were done, more just that they were done. And then, yes, it doesn't have specific readouts on what information, for instance, was garnered from the pulmonary artery catheter. And that clearly would have been helpful information for us to have had in order to better even understand what, what the use of these were. So can you take us a little bit through how you um, organized the study and then uh, some of the results? 
so again, we looked sort of across this eight-year time span from 2001 to 2008, and we looked specifically at adults in intensive care, and we included several units that were somewhat unique, and we can talk about those if you want, but generally speaking, it was a broad range of intensive care units. And our main goal was to assess sort of what was going on over time on the one hand, and then also to try to understand who were the, the practitioners and who were the patients in whom pulmonary artery catheters were still being used in the most recent time period. So to start with, we looked um, for trends in use across the entire cohort uh, over time, specifically those catheters placed in the intensive care unit, and then looked separately at the percentage of patients within each given ICU and how that changed over time to try to understand a little bit more about ICU level practice rather than the patients themselves. Um, and then finally, we did um, some just basic comparisons between folks, uh, patients who received pulmonary artery catheters in the units in whom they were being used most frequently. We considered that the highest quartile of use in the most recent time period, which we looked at specifically 2006 to 2008, and compared them to to patients uh, in other quartile of use ICUs, and then did a logistic regression with grouping clustering by intensive care units to try to understand what, if any, factors seem to drive persistent use in the most re recent time period. And certainly overall, um, you confirmed uh, what some folks have suspected and what some other uh, uh, groups have demonstrated a decrease in use over, over time. Uh, and that was fairly significant decrease, is it? It, it was certainly over the entire cohort um, there was a decrease. Um, and then specifically if we looked at the unit level information, sort of the, the median range, the median percentage of patients receiving them um, at the unit level was 3.6% in the early time period and down to 1.5% in the more later time period. Most interesting maybe for me, though, was still this wide variability, even in the most recent time period, with some units placing pulmonary artery catheters in up to a quarter of their patients. So some units as high as 25%. Oh. That's right. That's right. And that, that really hasn't changed. There are fewer units using them more often, but there are still, there were in the early time period and the late time period units in whom that was the, in which, I'm sorry, that was the plan. And what were the predictors of, uh, of those units or what types of units were the ones that were generally higher utilizers? Generally higher. Absolutely. So as you might imagine, the majority of the factors that fell out of the analysis um, once we did adjustment or patient-level factors, um, which we would expect, right? We would expect that the choice to place a catheter an individual person really would be um, based on their factors more than what unit they were in. And they included things like age and severity of illness, type of uh, admission diagnosis, things like this. Um, but most notably for us, perhaps, when we were trying to characterize types of units were specifically that surgical patients, and I think you would refer to this at the beginning, were more likely than medical patients to receive uh, catheters independent of what unit they were in and independent of whether they came out of the operating room or out of a different setting. And this, remember, is in people who didn't come to the intensive care unit with pulmonary artery catheters. Those folks were excluded, so this is just in people who came without one. And even in those settings, surgical patients were upwards of twice, um, they had an odds ratio of upwards of two um, in terms of their likelihood to receive pulmonary artery catheters. And then when we looked at the particular unit level factors, although they didn't quite meet statistical significance, being in a surgical ICU, again, made you have higher odds of receiving a pulmonary artery catheter, again, even in folks who didn't come with one. So I think that's what we sort of found most notable. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in some ways an expected finding, perhaps, but um, it surprised me a little bit, and uh, uh, more so, I guess, from a, my local experience uh, and regional experience and speaking with other surgical intensivists. But, um, you know, I, I do wonder why, why you think that might be that surgical ICUs do place more pulmonary catheters in general and didn't have a, as dramatic of a decline over time. Sure, and I, you know we we sort of have some thoughts on that, and this is really based more on our intuition and on, on sure. again, as you describe conversations with people than this data set itself. Um, but we were also let's let's be fair, quite surprised by this, um, and that was specifically because we really thought that it was going to be mainly that these types of catheters were being placed in operating rooms, and that's why those numbers were always higher. But this is even excluding those folks. So I, I think there are several thoughts that we had for why this might be, and one of them was that really practitioners in a surgical ICU setting or in a setting where many folks uh, who have had surgery recently are admitted are very familiar potentially with using these catheters, that they sort of have become comfortable with them. And so maybe because many folks are coming out of the operating with them, I'm sorry, operating room with them. And so they feel that this is really an integral part of, of care and haven't really, because so many folks are, are having them placed beforehand, had to think about how readily they're using them themselves. So that was one possibility we had. Another, which I think is very fair and possibly very important, is that these patients are probably intrinsically different in ways that we could not measure um, that maybe made them more amenable and more appropriate to still receive these catheters. Um, and then finally, there probably are, are different practice patterns and teaching styles and culture that, that makes us do things differently, even within the same hospital. I certainly know in our hospital, I feel like sometimes our surgical ICUs and medical ICUs are more different than two surgical ICUs in two different institutions or two medical might be. And I think that is sort of most interesting to me because that suggests that we just need to be talking to each other more, certainly in settings like this or like the Society of Care Medicine has, where we realize that we're all taking care of the same people but doing it very differently. You uh, you mentioned several different components there that uh, I'd be interested in exploring your thoughts a little bit further. The the in, in in terms of perhaps I don't know if you can answer some of these from, from your data set, but the, the idea that different uh, units within a single institution and I think we see this commonly have different practices. Uh, were you able to uh, to get to that type of level of data, or um, were there institutions, um, enough institutions, I would say, that, that submitted uh, data from more than one unit? Sure. There are a few. I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know off the top of my head how many. Um, there are a few. They are not sufficient, I think, to allow us to make any generalization for them. We didn't look specifically at them. We have for, for other things, so I know sort of the set, but it's sort of more on the less than 10 uh, hospitals probably have more than one unit contributing in a similar time period. It would be a really interesting question. I just don't, I don't think we have sufficient data in this set to look at it. You did have some data regarding um, the relationship between uh, academic medical centers and community hospitals, and did they follow similar trends as surgical versus um, medical ICUs? Or sure. So um, interestingly, and maybe my, or I guess maybe my intuition beforehand was incorrect, um, but I, I think having practiced again in many academic centers recently, just because I'm recently out of my training, I, I sort of have this idea that, that what I've seen where we don't use them as frequently was maybe more the standard. But we, we actually saw, again, not meeting statistical significance, but that there was really a trend toward higher use in academic institutions than um, there might have been in community-based hospitals. Um, I, I don't know 
really why that is. Um, I think part of that is maybe what you were suggesting, that people are concerned that people don't know how to do this anymore, and so we have to make sure that we train each other on how to do this. Um, another possibility, I suppose, is that the patient mix is, is different, although we tried to adjust for that as best we could. Um, there are probably unmeasured confounders in this that, that don't really explain away the difference between a patient admitted to an academic center versus a community center. But in this, there really did seem to be a trend toward higher use in the teaching facilities. I suppose, I wonder how much the surgical ICUs drove that in terms of most um, non-academic medical centers probably don't have a surgeon director or a surgical ICU. Um, were you able to tease that out a little bit? or A little bit. Not as much, unfortunately. What we were able to do... Um, we were able to tease out the medical director of the unit. We have the, the specialization of that uh, physician, but unfortunately we didn't have the uh, specialization necessarily of all the providers in the unit, and certainly not specifically the provider who, who provided actual care to the patient in question. Um, so we sort of want to believe, I suppose, that if we look at the medical director, that gives us an idea of maybe who he or she might want practicing under him, and maybe they're of similar specialty. And when we did that, we saw some suggestion that the anesthesia, again, not statistically significant, but that anesthesia-trained folks were more apt to place pulmonary catheters in the ICU than their medicine colleagues, and likewise surgeons, with, but with much less um, of an odds ratio, but again, not meeting statistical significance, and purely that's because these are all ICU level or unit level factors that we just don't have. We had over 150 units, but that's not enough, unfortunately, to drag these things to statistical significance. Sure. This idea of uh, de-adoption is, um, is interesting. Um, I hadn't really considered it in, in those terms, I guess. Uh, um, it, it makes some sense for me. Yeah, I think it 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 it, it, it takes a, an approach that's slightly different. To, you know, th- to think about different things that we do or don't do over time, uh, based on evidence and things that you know we're, we're usually mostly, as you I think allude to, we're mostly mostly talking about adopting new policies rather than or, or um, protocols or technology rather than de-adopting. Um, but it, it's a, it is a it, as you describe it a different phenomenon um what was maybe you can help us with some of the discussion that that came around that term it is is interesting sure and i think we hadn't even realized that that was necessarily what we were interested in before we started looking at this and we said that really what what seemed to come out was that this was a a good example so to speak of something that maybe there's good data that we should use less often and how were people turning doing uh enacting evidence-based practice in a setting where the evidence was telling them to stop doing something they were used to doing. Um, and I actually think looking more and more at sort of the choosing wisely, wisely um, uh, campaign recommendations are often asking us to do, to do less of things that we've gotten familiar with and used to. Um, and I think that for me at least, that's often harder to do. Um, it's harder to stop doing something that's made me feel comfortable uh, in my practice. Uh, whether it be in medicine or anything else. And so I, I, I think that really struck us as not only is this something that people are probably doing to varying degrees, but that there are probably unique barriers to this that may be different in different settings. And that as we sort of get more interested in the idea of studying these types of devices that we've been using for such a long time, we're going to see more of this, and we're going to have to understand how to get providers to feel comfortable you know, removing some of these maybe crutches that they're used to. It's interesting, you know, the, in, 
as I was reading and, and thinking about the pulmonary artery catheter, um, I was thinking you know, it's not as if many organizations have come out with a guideline uh, or a suggestion that really PA catheters should not be used. Um, the, the, the evidence certainly has pointed uh, to them not being beneficial, but not a whole lot of evidence uh, demonstrating um, any uh, deleterious effects. So, you know, I, I, I do wonder how that influences uh, the de-adoption of the pulmonary artery catheter and, and, and and how that would be analogous to other situations. Uh, and I was trying to think of other types of things that we might be de-adopting, perhaps maybe blood transfusions, for instance, uh, would be another. Right. Yeah, we, we sort of thought of just in terms of new literature that we had seen, just the in, there were recent studies on intraortic balloon pumps for folks in cardiogenic shock following uh, myocardial infarctions. Um, I think there's been a lot of sort of interest now in high-frequency oscillation and what we should do with that with the new trials coming out suggesting that that may not be helpful. And as you say, a lot of that is not harm. It's just resource use and a, a more advanced, potentially, technology that maybe doesn't provide something extra. And I, I agree with you. I think that's really probably a unique setting versus something like transfusions maybe where we, again, are probably seeing people less able to adopt this minimalistic strategy um, than then we might think they would adopt something new, but but that is in the setting of harm. This may be even more more difficult to see people give up things that really don't seem to help, but probably don't hurt. And the other the other thing that you had uh, mentioned earlier, which I always find interesting, um, you, you know, you kind of gave some some suggestion of. Uh, justification to surgeons, and that that perhaps the patients in the surgical ICU are, are a different cohort and and um, uh, may benefit. And you know, I you always hear this kind of tossed around from different folks. Well, our literature says this, or our groups of patients are different than this groups of patients. And I I, I always uh, I always cringe a little bit with those types of justifications. Uh, in that, unless you can really show me that it's beneficial or you have some better evidence than uh, other trials have uh, suggested. Uh, is that really the case? No, I, yeah, I, as I mentioned, I mean, we tried as best we could to, to try to you know, adjust for enough to make the patients as similar as possible, so to speak. And, and I, I agree with you. I, I think it's hard, um, especially with multiple studies now looking at very many different patient populations, to say that there's something that's so importantly different about these folks that they would really benefit. But we just, to, to retrospectively make that statement is hard. Um, and obviously, as you had mentioned, if we had access to information about sort of the thought process behind the decision to put them in, that would be very informative. Um, and we're sort of left now looking back. Um, certainly someone studying that forward would be able to get that information, but we didn't. Uh, thoughts about any... Um future endeavors in this particular area of de-adoption? Um, I think it would be interesting to study in other settings. It would, it's, um, we're, we sort of need to find a data set that really allows this level of detail. Unfortunately, as I had mentioned, Project Impact is, is sort of, uh, has been closed. Um, there are other data sets um, that, are, that are being produced in a similar way, but I don't know that they have the detail um, of this sort of what actually happens in the ICU versus what somebody comes in with. And I think for me, anyway, that would be an important 
thing to know going in is when we want to talk about intensivist practice, are we really able to talk about what the intensivist is doing? Um, to be honest, I haven't. We haven't embarked upon a new next step um, for this idea of de-adoption, but it is certainly an area of interest for me um, and one that I would like to continue to pursue. I was as um, you were talking in, about cost containment and choosing wisely. Uh, another part of um, uh, your data that I found interesting, and, and pr- correct me if I'm if I'm misinterpreting this. Uh, you didn't you didn't highlight it a whole lot in the manuscript, but it appeared to me that the the high utilizers uh, in of uh, PA catheters in that top quartile group had. Um, a similar um, risk of mortality on admission, but had um, higher lengths of stay and higher mortalities. Uh, and I, it, it it makes me think of critical care in general and this idea of perhaps there are things that we're doing that we shouldn't be doing, like putting in PA catheters or like transfusing your, as you called it, a minimalist approach. Um, that that we that perhaps that we are actually changing outcomes by this process of de-adoption. Absolutely, and I, I think as you point out, we didn't make much of that, and, and the reason was not so much um, that we think it's not important. <laughs> it's that to try to explain it retrospectively is a little bit tough. So, if we were to look at that original. Uh, severity of illness prediction for mortality in the hospital. What's comforting is that they're similar in all the groups and makes us think that the groups are, are somewhat comparable. But once we say that mortality is higher in the high utilizers, one of two things is the case. Either that, that we're hurting them somehow by doing this and or many other things that maybe those same high utilizing ICUs do, as you say. Maybe they don't adhere to transfusion practices similarly to other units, et cetera. Or maybe there really is something different about these patients, that those hospitals are places where, where really sick people are. And I think it's hard to retrospectively make that difference, make that distinction. So you're right, we didn't make much of it, but I do do think it's interesting. I think one of the real possibilities is that not necessarily that pulmonary artery catheters and high use of them is necessarily causing harm to these patients or this degree of harm, but that that the whole mentality that for whatever reason goes with an ICU where they're being used more frequently maybe includes other practices that have not been de-adopted or have not been adopted for new evidence-based practices that maybe are also contributing. Yeah, very well said. Uh, Well, thank you so much for your time. It really is great to uh, talk to you about a a fascinating topic um, that opens many other doors as well. Certainly look for the opportunity. Thank you and look forward to further work from you. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening and please check out our website at www.sccm.org/icriticalcare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Join more than 4,000 critical care clinicians January 9th through 13th, 2014 in San Francisco, California, USA for SCCM's 43rd Critical Care Congress. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. 
His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.